Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We are here for Charles Yu, and we're so, so happy to have him here. Um, he's the author of How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, which has some very good advice. You should probably check it out. And uh, it was named one of the best books of the year by Time Magazine, and he received the National Book Foundation's 535 Award for his story collection, Third Class Superhero. Um, but tonight, he is here for his new short story collection, which is all over the internet, like literally, all, like look, two pages worth of like blurbs from the internet, but I won't read them all. I will just go straight to the juice here, which is Charles Yu with his new book, Sorry, Please, Thank You, uh, Stories. So um, please welcome Charles Yu. Thank you so much. Well, actually, sorry. That's, that's appropriate, right, for us. It's part of my plan. was It's going to be 30 minutes late and make you all wait so I could apologize. Um, off. I, when people ask me, like, how do I balance being a writer and being a lawyer? And the answer is, apparently, I don't. Because uh, I, I got in the car at 5.30 from Playa Vista, uh, picked up my lovely wife who was setting up stuff, and... Uh, I'm sorry. There's a just no, there's nothing else. I mean, you all got here. So what am I? Just bullshit. You know, excuse, right? Um, uh, thank you, Cecil. It's a, what? I get introduced by Cecil Castellucci. It's to work here. Okay. I, so awesome. Wow. Um, well, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, I uh, this is my latest book, and it is a story collection. And um, there are 13 stories here. And as you now, now know, I guess the title is Sorry, Please, Thank You. And so um, the idea, I guess, is that there are four sections. Um, sorry, please, thank you, and then all of the above. Um, and I guess I'll, let me read the, one of the epigraphs here to start off with. Human beings do not live in the objective world alone but are very much at the mercy of the particular language which has become the medium of expression for their society. The fact of the matter is that the real world is to a large extent unconsciously built upon the language habits of the group. No two languages are ever sufficiently similar to be considered as representing the same social reality. That's Edward Saper. Uh, the next one is, we dissect nature along lines laid down by our native languages. And that's Benjamin Lee Wharf. And they, if you might know this, but uh, I guess there's a famous hypothesis called the Wharf-Saper hypothesis um, that basically says, with the, you know, in a nutshell, that the language, the native language you speak dictates how you actually see the world. Um, you don't act like, 
Um, I guess an extreme example would be if you didn't have the word for something, um, you you might not even actually understand that concept. Um, and I was interested in thinking about this in light of a couple things. Um, one, in terms of universal words like sorry, please, and thank you, which aren't universal, I guess, necessarily. I'm not a linguist at all. I speak one language, so I'm definitely not a linguist. But um, um, sorry, please, and thank you are do seem to have analogs in lots of languages. Um, why? That was interesting to me. Why? What are those? What? What? Are, what is sorry? What is? What is please? What is thank you? Um, what are their rough equivalents in any other languages? Um, I don't know. I could Google things and try to find out, but instead I just made up a bunch of stories about it. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me in thinking about that idea and then jumping to another place was um, uh, increasingly how environments, like say Facebook, um, do the same thing as a language, right? Uh, Facebook is a is a is a, a visual environment that you go into, and it it has it also has a language to it and a grammar. It has very limited set of things you can do, really, in some ways, right? You can like something, and or you can be silent. Um, <laughs> that's it. Um, well, that's not it, but that's you know that's all I know how to do on Facebook. So for me, that's really dictating how I function in that kind of environment. So. Um, uh, I'm really just trying to put off reading because <laughs> trying to catch my breath. Um, anyway, I guess that's a little bit of context. Let me read. Um, I read bits of of three three little bits, and I won't keep you too long. And please, uh, does anybody want to like get wine before I start? Like seriously, because I made you wait for 30 minutes. If it'll make anyone feel better, I will bring it to you. <laughs> please raise your hand if you want me to bring. Okay, red or white, Elliot? Uh, red. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. No. <coughs> I'm seeing if I can maybe faint. Anyone else? Oh, good. Anybody else want red or white? Just raise your hand. Yeah. Red, white. Awesome. Hi. I hope no one had dinner reservations at 8:30, but we'll get you there. Okay. Excellent, excellent, okay. Um, just, it, the prose gets better the more you have. <laughs> I'm like a National Book Award winner after two cups of wine. In my own head, in my own head. Um, okay. I'm also going to figure out which story I read first. Okay, the first story I'm going to read from is a first-person shooter. Um, I will not intro it because it's pretty self-explanatory. Janine is on line four. There's a finger in housewares. I don't ask what she means because I can't think of anything funny to say because I can never think of anything when I'm talking to Janine because I'm in love with her. I tell her I'll check it out and hang up the phone. The whole way over to home and bath, I'm just repeating myself under my breath, stupid, 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 stupid dummy. The only thing that makes me feel better is that none of this really matters since I don't have a chance in hell with her anyway. 
I hang a left at the towel racks and then a quick right and whoa, Janine was not kidding. That is definitely a finger on the ground in the middle of the aisle with all of the slow cookers. This is the graveyard shift at World Mart, the biggest store in the human world. I work Sunday through Wednesday and then Friday if anyone calls in sick, which of course is pretty much every Friday. We're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year because keeping the fluorescent lights on for a decade or two until they burn out is actually cheaper than turning them on and off. And that means for eight hours every night, there are two of us in here minding the store, which is roughly the size of three city blocks. I walk over to the nearest house phone and call Janine. We should tell Bert, I say. Bert is the manager. At the moment, Bert is not in the store. He's in the parking lot, a quarter mile away, listening to Black Sabbath with the windows rolled up and a smoke-filled Pontiac Sunbird. I can smell it from here. So tell him, Janine says, and there's something about the way she says it. It's a dare. She's daring me. It's a test. She's testing me. I start to wonder whether, despite all of the stupid things I have said to Janine, I might actually have a chance with her. I hang up the phone and go back to where the finger is. I pick it up. Then I feel something cold and sharp tickling the back of my neck and I almost wet myself. A small yelp escapes from my throat. I turn around to see Janine. I hate everything about her except for the fact that I love everything about her. I don't think I would actually ever want to kiss her so much as I'd want to possess her, consume her, eat her so that no one else could have her. You should have seen your face, she says laughing at me, but not quite mocking me, not quite. Is this how she flirts? <laughs> I slip the finger into the pocket of my jacket. I don't know why exactly, but I don't want her to see that I have it. A bunch of stuff crashes to the floor over in another section. Sounds like toiletries, I say, and we both run toward aisle 97. <laughs> we stop in mascara, crouch down, and listen to what sounds like shuffling. Janine starts crawling toward lipstick, and I try to grab her ankle, but just end up with her shoe in my hand. She looks back, catches me watching her from behind, then motions for me to follow. We stop at the Maybelline end cap just in time to see someone or something shambling toward a beef jerky sample station. Janine shrieks and then the thing lets out a groan and then Janine and I are both up on our feet and running and we round the corner into eyeliner and come face to face with it, whatever it is. Only, it's not an it. It's a her, a zombie. A woman, a zombie woman. She's older than Janine, closer to my age, maybe early 30s. Missing a little bit of her face, but otherwise sort of pretty in a melancholy way. <laughs> she looks nervous, I say to Janine, but Janine's gone, flat out sprinting, screaming all the way to power tools. Pretty zombie lady holds up two different tubes of lipstick, one blood red and one that's more sort of an earth tone, and then I understand. She wants my opinion. <laughs> I step back, look at her skin, which I guess is sort of a grayish baloney color. <laughs> and point to the earth tone tube. It matches your blouse better, I say. She's holding the lipstick in her right hand, which has a hole where the ring finger should be. I pull her digit out of my pocket and offer it to her. She takes it and jams it into the hole where it used to be and then sort of nods as if to say thanks. She starts to creep over toward accessories. We shop for a while together like this. She picks out a couple of options. I give her my choice. Sometimes she goes with it, but a couple times she goes the other way. At one point, she stops in front of a mirror and looks at herself, and I'm looking at her look at herself, wondering what is she thinking? And we lock eyes. We're making eye contact with each other in our reflections in the mirror. 
She's clearly thinking about someone. Me? No. This is crazy. But is it? I don't know. I don't know anything. I didn't even think zombies could think. And I'm thinking, maybe she's not thinking. Maybe she's under the control of someone else. Maybe I am, too. Pretty zombie lady moves slow, and by the time she manages to pull together a decent-looking outfit, it's a quarter past two. Just as I realize I haven't seen Janine in half an hour, I hear her voice booming over the PA system. I'm in firearms, she says. Stay low. <laughs> I pick up the nearest phone. She is not going to hurt us, I say, my own voice carrying, carrying out across the cavernous store. I just hope zombie girl understands me. What are you talking about, Janine says. She's going to eat us. She's going to eat our brains. <laughs> I don't think so. That's not what she's doing here. What is she doing here? Um, I say, I think she's getting ready for a date. <laughs> Before Janine has time to process that, I look up and see pretty zombie lady's face on the giant HD screen hanging over home entertainment. Huh, I say, watching her try to figure out the camcorder. What? Uh, gotta go. Janine can hear in my voice that something's very wrong. What's happening, she says. Our friend just discovered House of the Dead, too. That's a zombie video game. That's a pretty um, geeky reference, I guess. I approach, sorry. I approach carefully, stop a few feet behind her. We both stand there watching the demo for a while, limbs being blown off, exploding heads. And then, when she turns around, I see that in her blank-eyed kind of way, she looks hurt, betrayed. Janine comes marching down the aisle with a hand cannon. Her skinny arm can barely keep it level. She's got it pointed at pretty zombie lady, right at her head. The zombie just looks at Janine, unblinking, almost as if she wants to get her head blown off, which I suppose is understandable. She started off tonight excited for a date, and then she comes in here and sees this game, and now who knows what's happened to her self-image, to her picture of the world. Is there such a thing as a self-aware zombie? Can a zombie realize what she is? Maybe there are degrees of zombification, and she's not quite all the way there yet. Maybe I'm partway there myself. I put my hand on top of Janine's and slowly, slowly lower the gun. Her hand is warm and full of blood, and I should be excited to be touching Janine, but instead, I'm worried about zombie lady. She scratches her finger nervously until it falls off again and hits the ground. <laughs> we all look down at it. The House of the Dead demo is starting over. A bunch of zombie heads explode on screen. Janine's still got the gun in her hand. I'm trying to figure out if this is the best day of work ever or the worst. Why am I so self-conscious? What am I so scared of? It's now or never. Would you like to go see a movie on Thursday? <laughs> Are you asking me or her, Janine says. <laughs> looks like she's already seeing someone, I say. Janine looks at me for a long moment like she's trying to look inside of me, almost as if she's noticing me for the first time. Yes, Janine says. Yes, I would. I look at zombie lady who is staring at a slack-jawed. Whatever flicker of awareness I might have seen behind her eyes a moment ago isn't there anymore. She turns and drags herself toward the exit, and then with a whoosh of the automatic double doors, she's gone. I wonder if she's still going on her date, I say. I'm pretty sure she's going to find Bert and chew on his brain, she says. Janine and I stand and watch for what feels like a very long time, enjoying the mix of hot and cold air, here at the boundary of the store, glad to be on the inside. So that... Thanks. Is that... Are we done? Is that enough? Okay. Almost. 
Um, okay, I won't read the whole story again, but that one was short enough that I thought worth doing. I kept wanting to stop, and I was like, if I stop now, it's like a unintentional crappy cliffhanger. Like, not real, I just would have stopped in the middle, and then you'd have been like, what happens? <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Um, hmm. Okay, I think read a few parts, just little snippets of other stuff. I'm going to read the first sentence of every other story in the book. Um, okay. This feels weird to read because it's been online for a long time. Um, so, and it's like part of the Amazon preview, so... If you cared at all about the book, you would already know this, but I'll just read it anyway. Uh, this is standard loneliness package. I will read just a couple pages. Root canal is 150, give or take, depending on who's doing it to you. A migraine is 200. Not that I get the money. The company gets it. What I get is $12 an hour, plus reimbursement for painkillers. Not that they work. I feel pain for money. Other people's pain. Physical, emotional, you name it. Pain is an illusion, I know, and so is time. I know, I know, I know. The shift manager never stops reminding us. It doesn't help, actually. It doesn't help when you're on your third broken leg of the day. I get to work three minutes late, and already there are nine tickets in my inbox. I close my eyes, take a deep breath, open the first ticket of the morning. I'm at a funeral, feeling grief someone else's grief. Like wearing a stranger's coat still warm with heat from another body. I'm feeling a mixture of things, grief mostly, but also I detect some guilt in there. There usually is. I hear crying. I'm seeing crying faces, pretty faces, crying pretty white faces, nice clothes. Our services aren't cheap, as the shift manager is always reminding us. Need I remind you? That is his favorite phrase these days. He's always walking up and down the aisle, tilting his head into our cubicles and saying it. Need I remind you, he says, of where we are on the spectrum in terms of low end, high end? We are solidly toward the highish end, so the faces are usually pretty. The clothes are usually nice. The people are usually nice too. Although I imagine it's not such a big deal to be nice when you're that rich and that pretty. There's a place in Hyderabad doing what we're doing, but a little more toward the budget end of things. <laughs> Precision Living Solutions, it's called. And of course, there are hundreds of emotional engineering firms here in Bangalore springing up everywhere you look. The other day, I read in the paper that a new call center opens once every three weeks. Workers follow the work, and the work is here, all of us ready to suffer. We're in a growth industry. OK, the body is going into the ground now. The crying is getting more serious. Here it comes. I'm feeling that feeling, the one that these people get a lot near the end of a funeral service. These sad and pretty people. It's a big feeling. Different operators have different ways to describe it. For me, it feels something like a huge boot. Huge, like it fills up the whole sky, the whole galaxy, all of space. Some kind of infinite foot. And it's stepping on me. The infinite foot is stepping on my chest. The funeral ends and the foot is still on me, and it's hard to breathe. People are getting into black town cars. I also appear to have a town car. I get in. The foot, the foot, so heavy. Here we go. Yes, this is familiar. The foot, the foot. It doesn't hurt exactly. It's not what I would call comfortable, but it's not pain either. More like pressure. 
Deepak, who used to be in the next cubicle, once told me that this feeling I call the infinite foot, to him it felt more like a knee, is actually the American experience of the Christian God. Are you sure it's the Christian God, I asked him? I always thought God was Jewish. You're an idiot, he said. It's the same guy, the Judeo-Christian God. Are you sure, I said? He just shook his head at me. We'd had this conversation before. I figured he was probably right, but I didn't want to admit it. Deepak was the smartest guy in our cube cluster, as he would kindly remind me several times a day. So that's a story about um, a emotional engineering firm. It's a, a technology, I guess, in the future where you could actually outsource the bad parts of your life so for someone else to feel it for you. Um, and I was thinking a lot about technology when I wrote this. Um, there's, a, there's a story in here about um, well, basically a world, an artificial environment that feels very much like a video game. Um, and there's a story in here about a technology, a, a device that you get to hold in your hand that you basically can put in up to 48 characters. And I actually wrote this story way before Twitter existed, but it changed a lot. And now 48 characters seems like not nearly enough because I realized you can't even like, what could you write? But the idea was that you could write 48 characters, anything you want, but it has to be 48 characters. And you have to be really precise because if you're not precise, you're going to get, you know, um, you know, you get you have a bad genie. You're gonna get the perverse wish that you didn't you didn't intend. So, um, I'm not gonna read any of that though. I don't know why I said all that. So, um, uh, I guess I guess I should read a little bit of one more and then maybe take questions. Is that all right? Sound about right? Okay. I'm gonna read super fast for this one. So if you can't understand me, just pretend it's good writing. <laughs> Any Star Trek fans in here? Oh, okay. okay. I hate Star Trek. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you'd think I would know the order of the stories in my own book. It's not even that long. There we go. Okay. All right, here we go. Yeoman. We reached the final frontier today. Oh, again. No one wants to be the first to say it out loud, so it's one of those things where we have cake and beer and everyone mouth smiles at each other while our eyes are all, does anyone even know what is going on anymore? As in, this is cool, for real it is, but seriously, what the hell? I'm on the observation deck looking at it. The last world. Am I excited? Sure I am. Even if it is, even if it is the 17th time we've been here. I'm excited. I guess we're still searching. Technically, I think we'll always be searching. As long as we're on this ship, have these uniforms on, we're searching for something. Nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, to be honest, lately it started to feel a little less like searching and a bit more like, I don't know, wandering. Monday. Monday mornings they announce the crew members for this week's away team. And it's always the same. Captain, the XO, the medic, the security chief, the ethnographer, and an unnamed yeoman. This week's yeoman, me. Also, the yeoman always dies. Information that would have been useful to know before I accepted the position. They said, here's your, un here's your new uniform. They said, oh yeah, you get a pay raise. They said, hey, how about a promotion? I said, yes, yes, I've always wanted to be a yeoman ever since I was a kid. To go down to the surface with the bridge officers. To wear that new uniform, get that little bit of extra money in the check. 
They said, yes, yes, that's what it's like. They said, it's even cooler than you think. They said, great, great, good, good, all good, congratulations. No one said anything about dying. <laughs> Galactic Human Resources assigns me a coping specialist. We meet over breakfast in the non-officer's mess. He orders a Denver omelet, a bowl of cereal with 2% milk, an English muffin, grapefruit juice, coffee, and a yoo-hoo. You should have something, he says, mouth full. He swallows a big lump of starch, washes it down with milk from his cereal bowl. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. How old are you, I say. He says he's 12, but if I had to put money on it, he's 10. 10 and a half, tops. Anything you want to talk to me about, he says, stuffing a fork full of egg and bell pepper in his face. I'm good, I say. Foot yourself, he says, chewing with his mouth open again. A little piece of scrambled egg falls out. I watch him eat way too much, way too fast. When he's done, he wraps his English muffin in a napkin for later and hands me his card. Tells me to call him if the whole meaningless death thing starts to bum me out. Or if you start to experience fear of death symptoms, he says. I ask him what a fear of death symptom might be. He thinks about it for a second. Pretty much just fear, he tells me. Also, extreme fear. Here's the thing I start to say. I want to tell him that I'm married, that in less than three months I'll be a father, that dying this week would really throw a wrench into my family planning. I want to say all of it, but for some reason I can't. So instead, I tell him he has a little piece of ham on his shirt. Score, he says, and pops it into his mouth. <laughs> Over dinner that night, I try to figure out how to explain it to my wife. They posted the list this morning, and you're looking at the newest member of the away team, I say. Yeah, she says, reaching to take my hand. Yeah, I say, pulling my hand away. Wait, I thought this is what you wanted. I'm the yeoman. Oh, she says, wait, what does that mean? I'm probably going to die later this week. So, no movie night? No, I'm, I'm serious. So am I. I love movie night. I'm the yeoman, I say, raising my voice. Do you know what that means? She shakes her head. The yeoman always dies. She, put, she puts her fork down and doesn't say anything for a while, just sits there running her hand over the horizon of her pregnant belly. There's a small insurance policy, I say. I got a packet from Human Resources. Let me go get it. When I come back into the room with the folder, she's putting on her coat. Um, I say, this is bullshit. We are not living off a death benefit. This isn't how she talks usually, but then again, she's 28 weeks pregnant. She is not messing around. I'm going to see the captain. Whoa, 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 I say, you can't do that. Not even wearing pants. <laughs> you are not dying for this job, she says, and she's right. It hurts to admit it. I love you, but yeah, I said it. Your new job sucks. This sucks. Living in a converted closet sucks. You even kind of suck. The only thing that doesn't suck is this baby we are going to have. You know, some people would be happy about this. It's a promotion. She just looks at me like, what do you, who do you think you're talking to? Okay, I say, I'll talk to him. That night, I lie awake staring out into the cosmic background radiation, trying to figure out what I could possibly say to the captain that would make him think I'm worth saving. Thank you. Thanks again for um, sitting through 30 minutes of nothing and then 30 minutes of that. Um, should, do we have time to take questions? Or? Okay, if there are any. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my question would be, how is it that you so managed to do humor and heart at the same time? Like everything, it's like funny and also like 
Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, well. I mean, I guess that's a hard question. No, it's not. It's not. I'm trying to think of something funny and heart, heartfelt to say. <laughs> so that's, that's the key, right? I'm just, I'm just trying to produce that. <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I read a lot of greeting cards. Do you, do you think that the fact that you, that like, that, that you go sort of like with something that seems very familiar and safe for us as a reader, but then it sort of goes into a... Like, do you think that that is, helps with that? That's, that's a very, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. I think that's what I like to do, is take something that seems like a weird premise and then make it way more sort of, like, mundane than, than it should be. And then you've got the juxtaposition of two things, and you end up with a situation that isn't really, I mean, it's pretty typical. It's just a husband and wife arguing about, you know, um, whatever and and so yeah I guess that's what I it seems to be a, a, a common sort of I don't say formula but it seems to happen a lot in my writing <laughs> um, yeah thanks <laughs> uh, any other questions come on oh hi Lori how good how are you Um, I haven't read it yet. Uh, I've been saving it. I've, I've browsed some of it. Um, what did you think of the tone? <laughs> it was, it was, he wrote it as you write your stories, the metafiction. Yeah. And I didn't think he pulled it off. Um, I don't think it was surprised. Okay. Well, no, you can, yeah. But, so, yes, I guess I guess I gathered that. I'm. I think it's cool that he did that. I, th I think when we had that conversation, he was really nice. We had a great conversation. He came and sat in my house and met Michelle and saw the babies briefly. And we talked for like four hours. And then we went to lunch. And I've never had an interview like that before. So I think by the end, I was a little bit like punchy, kind of like I am now. <laughs> and. Um, uh, we we got to some weird places talking, and so um, I don't know. I think I, he he was he was even kind of hinting at the end that he might try something like that. So um, yeah, but I guess I have to read it to to answer that question. I think it was great. I think that interview was great. You know, I mean, I, I it, it it was very cool to be in poets and writers. I used to read that when I was in college, and uh, I stopped. But I, I, not for any good reason. But. Yeah. Well, so if I understand correctly, you have how many kids? Two. And you're a lawyer. Yeah. And you write fiction. I do. So how do you do that? Um, really seriously. Yeah. Because like some most people couldn't do all of that. Um, I, one thing is to have a stupendously awesome wife. Um, she gives me time to write on the weekends, which is great. Um, couldn't do it without that. I have no hobbies <laughs> and no interests, including writing. I just do it. I, I really don't. I don't. I don't have hobbies. I don't see anybody. It's like the only thing I do, really, outside of work and and family right now. So, I mean, you know, two or three hours a day, more if you can get it. It's enough. 
barely. Days like this, it feels like it's not quite enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Kelvin. Hi. No, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you ever think about um, how there's being a Los Angeles writer. Yeah. I don't know. I just crossed my mind because it's just not that common in words. Yeah. In LA, you don't, you don't pick up like, that many popular Warren Barnes Noble's storefront book and sit on the back of this, you know, LA writer. Have like, you ever thought about what it would be like to write out of what LA or what that Um. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I think, I mean, I, I guess so. I think I used to think about it more before I found out that there are LA writers. I just don't know any of them, you know what I mean? Like Cecil. And, well, you know, I mean, you mean like fiction writers, because there's obviously, there's obviously you screenwriter types in the audience. I recognize you. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much. I, I mean, yeah. I guess it'd be nice if I knew if I if I, I could like go outside and see like fiction writers in the cafe. In the cafe. What am I talking about? <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to to know more fiction writers for sure. Yeah. Um, but that's that's mostly my fault that I don't. You know what I mean? Don't you think? <laughs> I could be better about keeping it. Yeah. I wasn't writing in New York, though. Not really. Yeah. 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 I think. I mean, yeah. It felt a little different. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It is. It is. You have to get in the car and drive. Yeah. I mean, I think. What do you think, Cecil? I think it's totally isolating. Yeah. But it's a good exile, I think. Hmm. Ah. Because every because everyone's got a novel. <laughs> because you step out your door and you run into six editors and eight writers like in one block, and you're like, why am I even bothering? Like, the sucks. Like, okay, you but, can't stay in your own. But in LA, you're you're like a fiction writer in a land of movies, and yeah. so it's totally different. But it's still kind of it's 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 very far from New York, so you have this freedom to sort of do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. yeah New York is the industry for you. I guess this could be an honest LA opinion. Like, if somebody were to tell me about a, a zombie short yeah. film, I would say, oh, okay. But then hearing your story, it's absolutely delightful and Thank you. touching and humorous. And I would want to now make a short film. So, but you said you go out of your house in New York and it's like you see all these editors, other writers, and it makes you feel bad about yourself. That's, that's what a screenwriter is. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like the industry's like on top of you. Yeah, yeah. Except in this. <laughs> We're safe in here. Hi, Charles. Hi. Hi. Uh, I don't even know if this question is just kind of stuff. Go for it. It has something to do with language games. And, uh, uh, you know, law as a language game. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. It's going to be good. You, you law before you started writing? Yes. And, uh, so yeah. it seems, you know, I read your novel and it seemed, and, Thank you. and hearing these things, it seems like characters in a way that that juxtaposition is characters are, are stuck in language games. Mm -hmm. They find language games 
I would say genres are language games, you know, yeah. zombie genre, this genre. Hmm. It seems like you're playing this game of what if you were really in this genre and yeah. you suddenly woke up and and uh, I'm not sure like did you did you always did you kind of all did you always want to be a writer? I don't even know how that mm-hmm. and then travel through law and then find that you needed more entertaining language games to play for with yourself. And and the second thing is, do you kind of bounce around in life feeling like you're in the middle of language games? Yeah. Thank you. That's a stupendous, fantastic question. I I hadn't thought of it exactly that way. I mean, I think you might have, you you might be putting your finger on something that, I mean, I, I don't think a lot about how law specifically, like, deforms my mind in a way that might affect my writing, but I'm sure it does. But I don't try, I try not to think too hard about it. But I do think that what you're saying is right in that um, it, it makes, I do think of like, even writing a contract is kind of like a genre. And, and what you said about genres is very interesting in that it's a, it's like kind of a, a set of conventions. It's like a little, you know, it's not a formula, but it's a, there's certain general principles with each genre that you kind of have to follow if you're going to write in it, and then you can break them or bend them. But, um, and so, I guess to answer first part of your question, I, I have wanted to be a writer for, since I was a kid. I didn't actually write fiction though until I was in law school, until I, right after I graduated from law school. So my, so my fiction writing and my law actually are, like started at the same time basically. Um, so, it's actually probably impossible to separate, you know, like I haven't been a fiction writer for any period of time that I wasn't actually a lawyer. Um, the, um, in terms of like the meta stuff, I think from the very beginning I was writing metafiction. I just, it just was what I, I've always been like a self-conscious person, a very self-conscious person, a very um, sort of uh, self, um, I don't know, self-absorbed? No, self sort of, uh, yeah, self-absorbed, okay. Let's just say it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, there's just always going to be something that that probably it finds its way into my writing. I Maybe too much sometimes. I mean, I, I want to get it out. I would rather, for the, my next thing, have it have none of that in there. You know, none of this on a genre-savvy character kind of knowing what kind of world he's in. I, I've, I feel like I've done that, and I don't want to do it over and over again. It keeps happening, but uh, um, one thing that is kind of making that happen more now, though, is my kids. Like, I tell my kids so many stories that I'm always thinking about stories in that way. Um, the other day, I was, our kids were both, it was out of, you know, after bath time, they're both getting their nighttime routine, putting their pajamas on, and I'm telling my daughter stories. I have to tell her stories when I'm brushing her teeth, otherwise she won't open her mouth. So, but she, I'm not telling the story, right? She is telling the story. She tells me exactly what she wants, and then, and then she goes, tell me that story. And then I'm like, okay, and then if I deviate from it, she gets me back on the track, right? So she's the, she's not even the editor, she is the writer of the story, pretending, like she's using me as a puppet to tell her the story that she made up, right? And so she's telling the story, and she loves stories about, um, not Cinderella, she loves stories about Cinderella, but she loves stories that involve Cinderella and her two stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella. She loves those characters because they're 
they're they're not good. Um, and she, she, there's like a moral gradient. Cinderella's pure good. Drizella is pure bad. Anastasia, apparently, according to like this one Cinderella like sequel, is kind of in the middle. She's like redeemable, apparently. <laughs> and that is that is Sophia's favorite character because that person actually has some moral variability. Um, when I tell her stories, that I have to always constantly hit that theme. I'm constantly thinking, it's, everything's a variation on that story. It's basically, how did Cinderella stay good? How did Drizella stay pure evil? And what did Anastasia choose to do? Telling like, even like a 15 second story over and over again, even though it's a terrible, terrible story. I mean, you should hear these stories, but like, and I mean, I'm coming up with it while I'm brushing her teeth, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's incoherent, but not to her, right? And, and then, okay, so then she's demanding these stories, and then my son is literally yelling from two feet away going, and then I rode in on a dragon. I rode in on a dragon. He's three years old, right? He's inserting himself into her story, and she's super mad about it, right? She's like, no, you're not in this story. Like, that is basically, like, my world, and that's, like, you know, it's hard not to write metafiction, because I'm just imagining, like, her little world, and then she's the story, and then my son's big face kind of, like, coming into the frame, and then she's pushing his face out. Um, I swear that was an answer to your question, but you know what I mean? Like, that's why I think I'm obsessed lately with metafiction again. Like, my novel was very much about metafiction, uh, or was metafiction, and um, I think it's it's sort of like, it's just where I go. It's like my, you know, default setting, for better or worse. Okay, if you'll indulge me a comment about Sure. Well, we can, yeah. Real quick, I just, yeah. I love your novel. Thank you. It, uh, it could have been clever. It could have just been a clever thing. But as I'm reading, it got more and more, kind of like you were saying, more and more poignant. As this character can't get out of this thing, but you keep opening the frame deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's reflecting on itself, and he has to negotiate through there. And I thought, like, the apparatus of that, I, I kind of thought of the metamorphosis, you know, Gregor Samson when he was a cockroach. And then he has to live out all the variations of that sad mm. world. You know, but yours was more and more expanding. Mm. So all I'm saying is, I guess, is, is uh, even if it's metafiction, it, it moved me. Thank you. Thanks very much. OK. Oh, what did you get? Ooh, we got four. Three <laughs> OK. OK. Yes, we'll go in this order. Wait, that means you, right? So, yeah, so um, just a question about genre. Yeah, and, um, sorry. Science fiction, speculative fiction. And I've read How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe and some of your short work, and I get the sense of somebody who, you know, at one time or, me, or is now very immersed in, in the genre, that has a, a good sense of its conventions and stuff. Do you, do you feel like you have to kind of keep up on it for your own fiction to be commenting on it? Do you, do you read a lot of sci-fi, a lot of sort of stuff? Uh, no, that's a great question. I do feel a little bit of pressure because, uh, I, one, I, I not pressure, but like, I feel like I want to have like material. And if you're going to be doing that kind of thing, you kind of have to know what's going on. So 
Um, I, de I definitely, but it, it's stuff I would be looking at anyway. It's just that now I think I'm a little more conscious that when I'm absorbing s some pop culture stuff or absorbing genre stuff that I'm, you know, I'm probably storing it away for future, you know, jokiness or something. But yeah, definitely. Thanks. Hi. Uh, this question might be a little more <coughs> personal side and like maybe out of left field, but it's kind of a dual-edged question. Kind of, okay. Um, you consider being, uh, you consider being, uh, just like not you in general, but like in the sphere of Asian American literature, that kind of title to be alienating and kind of like instant like catch-all to be away from normal literature. And that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, do you consider yourself an Asian American writer? Mm, oh, that's a lot. That's an essay. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give you the short, glib version right now, and then we should talk about it after if you'd like. But because, um, uh, okay, so the first part. Okay, the second part first. Um, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I I guess I consider myself a writer who is Asian American. I mean. Um, and I think that that's sort of that's different from considering myself an Asian American writer. Um, that's I don't know what that means, but it, the, you know I th I think um, I, when I'm writing, my pen is an Asian American. You know what I mean? Neither is my hand. I mean, it really, it's not. Like, there's no filter on my voice other than the filter of my consciousness, right? It's not like I'm going, uh, okay, there's some prose. Now I run it through the racial machine. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, right? And who does? Who does? So it doesn't enter in that way. I think I am proud and happy. Like, I'm going to read next week at the Asian American Writers Workshop. They didn't contact me for the first two books. They're contacting me now. I am thrilled. I am thrilled. I was like, why? No love for the first two books? Come on. So, yes, I love that there are other Asian American writers who have, you know, a common sort of ethnicity and, and some other sort of maybe cultural similarities in their background. But um, it's not something that enters into my thinking very consciously very often. I would say that. But thanks. Okay, wait, do we two more? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Okay. Uh, the short answer um, is I only do if there was a specific reason to. Charles Yu was an Asian American protagonist for sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. Well, the, the protagonist of Standard Loneliness Package is, is South Asian, not South Asian American, South Asian. Um, um, there are other characters where I probably imagine them as a race, but um, this is probably going to be horrible to admit. There are characters where I've never thought about their race. Um, that's that just that's probably what some people hate about my writing is that it seems like it's um, not, not grounded in enough detail sometimes. That it, it is this kind of abstraction. So um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I guess is the short answer. It's a really interesting question, though. John, John. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I was just wondering, since uh, you have a day job, 9 to 5, how does that working all day affect your creative process um, in writing? Um, or does it not at all? Because it seems like you do draw a lot of inspiration from your family. Um, so how, does, how do you balance that? Well, I used to think it was a good balance. Now I don't anymore. I think the last couple of years I've started to hit a breaking point where I'm realizing it's just pretty much wearing the hell out of me. And like, I, it's not. It's not stimulating. It's not helpful. I mean, it's it is help. It's it, it's very. Um, it has a strong effect on it in the sense that it is what I do all day and who I am in a lot of ways. That's how I think, twelve hours a day. So, um, but. I think what I draw most from, from work life is the work life, like the people I deal with, how people are in an office in general, just sort of like the anthropology of the office situation more than um, it's the sort of subject matter or sort of cognitive deformation that comes from my job, I think. But to be honest, any effect that being a lawyer probably has on my writing is so ingrained now in who I am that I'll never really be able to see it. It's just a huge blind spot. That's just who I am now. Um, yeah. Well, thank you again, and sorry again to make you wait. Please eat and drink all of it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.